The career of Oliver Berkman has been about exploring ideas for a better life, most notably in his weekly column for The Guardian newspaper. In his latest book, 4,000 Weeks, he flips the world of productivity hacking on its head and asks how to make the best use of our most precious resource. As he puts it, confronting our radical finitude and how little control we really have is the key to a fulfilling and meaningfully productive life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling, John? I am feeling extremely uh, happy um, that we've got our guest finally after asking him for nearly two years. (laughs) He's finally dragged him here, kicking and screaming to come and talk to us. No, no, I'm seriously. um, I really, really um, looking forward to today's show. How about you, Scott? How are you feeling? I'm feeling that of all the ways I could be spending my time this morning, there is no other place I'd rather be than here talking to you and uh, talking with our guest today, because today we are joined by author and journalist Oliver Berkman. He's well known for his long-running Guardian column, How to Change Your Life, and has written three best-selling books on happiness, productivity, and time management. All, by the way, have really great titles. Uh, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. And most recently, a book that you and I particularly loved, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Welcome to The Evolving Leader, Oliver. Um, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling a little little fatigued and tired. We got back from a trip to uh, Amsterdam that uh, was uh, partly to do with the book, but went with my came with my wife and, and uh, five-year-old son, so it was a family trip as well. And then uh, all sorts of plane delay nightmares on the way back meant that I had very little <laughs> sleep last night. But I'm feeling focused now. This is a good time of day. Uh, my my uh, second wind has arrived. So um, anyway, giving you an honest accounting, but I don't think I'll fall asleep in the middle of <laughs> That's anything. what we want. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for that. So before we get into your wonderful book, 4,000 Weeks, um, can we get a brief tour of your world and how you got to become a chronicler of ideas about living a good life? Yeah, I, I mean, I became some form of journalist pretty swiftly after graduating from university i was sort of a i was a copy editor and a researcher on uh g2 the supplement of the guardian and then gradually became you know then i became a staff writer there and this column uh, that i did for yeah i think 12 years at guardian weekend magazine which sort of a, i mean my i did all sorts of different other things in my guardian career during that time but this was the one stable point that really just arose originally because um, an editor at The Guardian who is now a very good and old friend of mine, I think she just noticed that I was could be seen reading some of these productivity books and books on uh, sort of self-help books anyway, a little, you know, furtively under the desk or whatever, and thought she might as well get some some content out of it. So that was initially her, her um, uh, sort of inspiration. And then I was very fortunate when you end up doing a, a column like that over – over years and years, you can sort of, to a large extent, um, broaden it and make it about the things that you want it to be about. So I think a lot of my career as a writer has been basically about 
trying to find a way to keep on being a generalist under the guise of some specialism. And I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a strange specialism, isn't it? How to how to live a better life? It's so obviously not very specialist, and literally everybody on the planet <laughs> is is concerned about it uh, in in one way or another. So that's the sort of um, career level reason uh, our, our, our answer, I suppose. I think the um, and then yeah, started turning it into books as well. I suppose there's a like a therapy level answer, which is like you know, I think you're not drawn to topics that you don't struggle with. Uh, so I certainly kind of spent a lot of my earlier adulthood sort of wanting to figure out how to feel more in control of my time and how to feel less anxious about stuff. So it's all totally sort of a way of doing therapy in, in public as well, I suppose. Um, mm. I'm not sure it doesn't feel from, from the inside like it has a particular shape to it, that sort of process. It just is like I just have to do it and I I, I become – a strange person to interact with if I don't get to write something uh, for mm. a few weeks, you know. So I just just keep doing it. I get that. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the column if we could, because uh, it was a great source of joy every week. And we'll put a link to your last ever article from September 2020 in the show notes, so everybody can have a look. I'm curious, you know, when you look back over that time, what were some of the ideas and people that most stood out to you? Well, it was an interesting experience because I started off, I think, being very sort of skeptical to the point of cynicism, really. You know, I, I, that part of the initial intention I had for that column as a short, I didn't think it would go on for as long as it did, would be basically that I was going to mock terrible, cheesy, useless self-help and I did that to a certain extent, but it turned out that the far more sort of interesting thing about the whole world of self-help and the rest of it was that there was some value hiding there. And actually, one of the more fun, provocative things to do, given the Guardian readership of sort of similarly skeptical, maybe to the point of cynical people, was to sort of point out to my audience where where stuff actually seemed to, to 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 matter and to work, and and that it wasn't all uh, a sort of just a sort of entire sector full of nonsense to to laugh at uh, at all. Mm. So, I mean, who made the biggest impact in that in that space? I mean, there's lots of different phases to it. I remember early on being very impacted by the Buddhist writing of uh, Pema Chodron and by Eckhart Tolle, the the the, the world famous. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, author of The Power of Now. Uh, later on, I got quite interested in Jungian psychology and wrote of quite a bit that mentioning uh, a Jungian psychotherapist and writer called James Hollis, who's uh, made a had a big impact on me. And at the the risk of sounding like a sycophant, that book um, that you co-wrote, the, the way we're working isn't working, was one of those kind of interventions in the productivity literature that really you know, I think did form my perspective in a way, this kind of approach that begins to recognize the existence of limitations of stamina and the sort of bodily constraints that we live in. And the fact that whether you're sleeping and eating right is actually related to your ability to um, uh, produce good good knowledge work. And also the, this sort of push back against the idea that more and more efficient task processing is somehow the the holy grail of doing good good thinking and ideas work so there were a bunch of books like that but but that one uh 
really, uh, really, really was one of those milestones, I think, as well. So I, I loved 4,000 Weeks so much that you know, I gave it to all of our clients as a Christmas gift um, last year. Thank you. So tell us why. <laughs> not that big a number of clients. <laughs> <I suppose. laughs> tell us um, why you wrote it. I mean, I've got a story there, but I think the real truth is that um, both the main book projects I've done, it, it does feel to me from the inside like that's like the only book that I could write at that point. Um, and it could have been titled, both of them could have been titled, you know, much less um, sensibly from a commercial viewpoint, but they both could have been titled sort of, you know, my philosophy of life as it is right now. So I'm, 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 I, I sort of, the honest answer is that I sort of, once I see a pattern emerging in the things that I'm interested in. So for example, in the, the column was a great test bed for that, right? You can sort of five, 600 words, you can try something out. You can explore a whole lot of different areas. You begin to see patterns emerging in them. And then eventually they get a sort of, uh, uh, critical mass, I suppose, um, and then it it just feels like I I have to grapple with it at the uh, at the um, at that bigger and deeper scale of a book. It sounds a little bit pretentious to talk in these terms, I fear, but um, it does feel like it's not necessarily a process that I am guiding with my my will and my executive control. Um, the other way of talking about four thousand weeks is just that it is the story of someone trying to make sense of how to think about time, time management, productivity, the best uses of time, having already spent, you know, years trying and exhausting the possibilities of a, of a more conventional approach to time management. So it was sort of, I, I had to get to the point where I tested out so many techniques and found that none of them, surprise, surprise, uh, got me to this uh, place of total peace of mind and the capacity, the ability to do absolutely everything that was ever thrown at me and, uh, and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, so then the, the book is an attempt to sort of think, think my way into a, a more uh, uh, realistic and, uh, and sort of true to life uh, way of, of thinking about how to, how to use time. So I found the, the title itself provocative and sort of d disruptive because I, I picked up the book and I was like, 4,000 weeks? Is that really all I get? And I had to do the math and get the calculator out and go, well, crap, maybe that is all I'm yeah, going to get. A few more. I rounded it down but, for the sake of a gr attention-grabbing number, but yeah, yeah. But You've it, got 4,000 left. No, no, that's all you yeah, spent yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the other thing. Well, I know. I'm halfway. I'm, I'm 2,000 weeks in. Um, 3,000. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't done the math. But uh, how it gets me thinking, you know, how people think about time. And I'm wondering how what you found in your research, you know, how is our concept of time changed through the ages, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in a, in a way, I admit that the, the title is a little bit of a bait and switch, right? Because I think that the, what you might assume if you just saw that title in isolation would be that it is a book that's going to try to um, sort of terrify you into living a more meaningful life and convince you that you have to sort of pack every spare moment with something deeply extraordinary. Otherwise, you're not going to feel like you've you've used your time well. I think what one of the things that I'm trying to do uh, in the book is actually to sort of completely 
undermine in some ways that that whole um, rather stressful idea that we've only got a limited amount of time and therefore we should try in an incredibly strenuous fashion to use it as remarkably as possible. Because this is the thing you're referring to, I think. If you go back a bit, uh, you know, to pre-industrial times, based on the evidence we have and based on the the sort of anthropology among different groups of people and communities in the present day, there's strong reason to believe that this whole notion that that like there's ta- there's us, there's you, and then there's time, and these are two separate things, and you have got to somehow win the battle with time or fill your time with um, sufficient number of meaningful things or extract the most value out of time. There's some version of this adversarial relationship between you and your time. It's actually very strange when you stop to sort of think about it. And it's like the sort of water that we swim in. So we don't normally think of it as as being strange. It seems completely natural. But I think it is the source of almost all our stress and anxiety when it comes to time. Because, you know, it sets up certain expectations, both individually and in the wider society, that we ought to be able to fit a certain amount of things into our time. That if there are more things that we feel we need to fit into a portion of time than we can, then this is a problem and we need to try to solve it. Uh, But wasting time is bad because it's a resource and uh, you need to maximize the value of it. All these kinds of myriad ways in which we we sort of end up in a struggle with time. I think that a early medieval English peasant, to use the example that I use in the book, uh, would would never have had this thought to begin with. They'd have a, a truly terrible lives in almost all respects, but not this mm. kind of problem because I think time would have felt much more um, like just the medium in which your life unfolded. This this way of being that anthropologists call uh, task orientation, where the rhythms of the day are just given by the usually sort of agricultural and other. Uh, tasks that need doing and so there's a kind of it's very hard to explain in words and certainly in words less than just reading a whole long chapter from the book but it's <laughs> it, it, it there's it, it it's almost like an absence of, there's a sort of an alienation involved in the idea that there's you and there's time and you're in a constant war with your time and and it's more something like you know you just are time you just are this unfolding portion of of time that you that you get. And so questions like, what do I do about the fact that there's more that I need to do than I can do, or something like that, they just sort of they sort of cease to make any sense. And I think that in this respect at least it would have been a much more psychologically peaceful experience to be a medieval peasant. Not in lots of other ways. But um so so there's a very basic concept of time that we're using. It's absolutely essential in order to do all sorts of things that we've achieved as a civilization, but that kind of systematically causes us a level of anxiety and stress and a tendency to live mentally in the future and all the rest of it uh, that that we could sort of maybe at least sometimes choose not to um, be uh, entrenched in if, if we wanted to. So building on that a little bit, can can you tell us a little bit about the paradox of limitation? Yeah, this is just my name for um, 
uh, an observation that um, crops up in lots of different areas of writing and thinking about time, but not only time, and which I sort of saw as the thing that knitted everything I'm trying to say in this book together, which is that in some sense, what we're always trying to do in the conventional approach to time is to transcend or break through our limitations. We're trying to become so efficient that there's no limit to the uh, number of demands that we can accommodate or number of uh, opportunities that we can pursue. We're trying to become so in control uh, or or informed about uh, our world that we can feel totally secure about what's going to be happening uh, you know, down the pike. There are all these ways in which we try to transcend the, our limited state because the reality is that we have a very finite amount of time, can only do a small proportion of the things that we can dream of doing and have absolutely no total control over, you know, even the next second of our lives. We just get moment after moment after moment. And the paradox of limitations is just the idea that it seems to be a, a sort of uh, predictable, you know, law, to use that word uh a little casually, that the more you try to transcend and fight those limitations, the more difficult and overwhelming and stressful and uh, mm -hmm. lacking in meaning life seems to become. And by contrast, the more that you uh, confront and face up to and really try to sort of live wholeheartedly inside and in recognition of those limitations, uh, the more um peaceful and meaningful and productive and accomplished life becomes so it's just a paradox because it seems like a defeat it seems like um resigning yourself to a bad situation but it is in fact i argue the 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 precursor to doing the most impressive and meaningful things that you're that you're capable of there's so many ways in which you explore this in the book and um it, it's um it's very difficult to because your book is at, at its root a kind of philosophical exploration of all this so you you explore it in lots of different ways so to ask you to summarize it with a headline is is you know has its limitations so putting a pin on that if this question isn't a great question then we can find a better one but you describe how the german philosopher martin heidegger argued that our finite existence is bound with time and that most of us spend our time denying that fact either through distraction or denial so can you tell us what we can take away from this thinking by flipping that constraint of mortality yeah i mean i suppose a practical example of this very very sort of obscure point is just that it, it, it's the idea that a lot of the things that we do that where we tell ourselves maybe that what we're doing is making the best use of time or managing our time while pursuing a productivity system something like that that the real motive there is to is to avoid feeling the pain and the discomfort that come with being a temporarily temporarily limited human right because the obvious fact is that if you only have so much time in a life and in a day then tough choices are required you can you can you can think it would be wonderful to spend uh 12 hours a day uh 
deeply absorbed in your work, say. You could think that it would also be wonderful to spend those 12 hours uh, deeply absorbed in your family life, maybe 20 other different things that would all be meaningful, but you actually have to choose. If we were... um, if we were gods, if we could be sort of omnipresent, we could we could live all those lives at once, but we can't. So being finite means endlessly making these kind of tough choices, and they don't always feel like tough choices in the in the moment. But uh, there is this kind of built-in sort of tragedy to being human, which is that anything you decide to do, you're deciding not to do other things. You can't know that it's the right choice in the present moment or even in the future. Like you know. Any venture that you engage in, you you can't know that a different venture wouldn't have been more fulfilling or successful or or any of the rest of it. And all of this adds up to a kind of a a painful situation. And Heidegger and various other people, as I understand them, were simply saying that we um, that we go to very great lengths to not feel those high stakes in our lives. We go to very great lengths to continue kidding ourselves that we're working on becoming so productive and efficient that, you know, soon we'll be on top of our lives and we won't have to make these these tough choices. Or for other people, it could be sort of deep procrastination, right? The other end of the scale, right? This if you if you're really in love with the perfect idea of the novel you're going to write one day or the perfect uh uh, relationship that you're going to be in, then the best way to hang on to that feeling of being in control, of being a sort of god over your time, is obviously not not to launch in on that thing at all, because then you just get to cherish the the perfect fantasy. So, in all these different ways, we're sort of holding ourselves back from the truth of our situation and pursuing all these kind of neurotic ways of of interacting with the world, which are really there to to help us not have to feel this rather tough and unpleasant fact of being of being limited. And so, yeah, to turn it on its head, I think stepping more fully into the reality of our situation and being more willing to face up to those limitations, to the necessity of tough choices, to the fact that you will have to give up some goals and ambitions in order to focus on others, to the fact that, you know, missing out on stuff is just absolutely guaranteed. It's not something to be avoided uh, and a whole lot of other ways in which our our finiteness um, affects our lives it's uncomfortable and it and it can induce anxiety and discomfort but it is totally worth it in the end because that's the way that you actually get to make the most conscious choices about how to use your time that's the way to actually get started on the novel that you want to write or the deeply fulfilling potentially deeply fulfilling relationship that's the way to um let go of this kind of endless stressful quest to get on top of absolutely everything which which always feels like it might be about to happen a few months from now but you're not quite at it this moment and um so it's it's completely worth it and it, but it's like, yeah, really difficult because it involves sort of facing unpleasant facts about our situation. So, yeah, it is philosophical, but I think it's pretty practical too, ultimately. Let's stay with distraction a minute longer, A, because I've got a real problem with that, um, and B, because I just find it such an interesting topic. And as you're talking right now, you know, I've, I've been working on my own book deadline recently for something, a project, and I found many times when I sat down to 
really engage with it that I'd pause and go, I really need to go clean the garage. Right <laughs> yeah, right, I think right, that I think right, that's more important. Right. It's been I've been putting that off. And I imagine that many people listening to you right now are thinking about ways that they distract themselves. So I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's worth going deeper into in what way how are we using distraction as avoidance and is there any usefulness on the other hand for for positive distraction does that ever is that ever play in play into the what's going on yeah i mean i think the distraction distraction is another i talked about people trying to avoid the reality of their limitations by being obsessive productivity geeks like like i certainly was and i talked about them being sort of chronic procrastinators which is also me <laughs> in some ways um but another one of these which i guess yes is, is everybody is, is another way to sort of avoid these limitations i think is is distraction i think people don't pay enough attention to the fact that we sort of choose to be distracted um there's a big very important conversation going on now about the ways in which we are our attention is sort of taken from us by um uh you know attention uh, attention mining social media platforms and and all the rest of it and i think that's true but i do think that it sometimes leads us to overlook the way in which um when you succumb to distraction in the way that you describe right it's it's the thing you want to do in that moment the thing that you thought you wanted to do which is to keep writing your book is, is suddenly seems very very difficult and unpleasant or maybe intimidating or maybe boring and cleaning the garage or going onto social media or one of these things that um uh including as you say like chores that you might not even usually want to do suddenly become incredibly appealing and and i think that is ultimately best understood in the same framework of of um the fact that difficult work that matters to us brings us into uh, an encounter with our limitations and we don't like it, right? So when you sit down to write a chapter of a book, you really care that it comes out well, but you have no guarantee that it will. You don't know that you have what it takes to express the ideas properly. You don't know that people will receive it well. Um, it's a high stakes way to use your time and it sort of implicates lots of deep emotions about you know, whether you're an imposter or whether people give you the recognition you deserve or or whether it's going to make you the money you need in order to live the lifestyle that you want. There's so many things brought up uh, that are all to do with the fact that we're, that we're limited. And then, you know, uh, going and cleaning the garage is amazing because you can definitely do it. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of, you know, there'll be a little bit more tidiness in your life having having done it and it's so it's it's sort of appealing precisely because it is more comfortable and then i think digital distraction above all is is the sort of killer here because the phenomenology of being online in social media spaces and elsewhere really is that kind of unlimited like godlike thing right mm. where you can just sort of float around and present yourself as whoever you want to be and find out information instantaneously from thousands of miles away and it's sort of it's the exact opposite of like sitting there fighting with sentences to try to get an idea out of mm. your head that you really care about and have no comfort no certainty that you that you can uh 
do. So I think that, you know, I've found that very useful to understand just because it's easier to not succumb to the distraction when you can just be like, oh yeah, it's that thing happening again. And that's why it's happening. So that's, I think it's really interesting helping us to understand what is going on there in that moment, because I think sometimes we, we see ourselves as weak in that moment and facing into the, the, the uncertainty emotion that that creates doing something difficult. Cause that's really what's going on is now. I don't know whether this is going to be successful. Yeah. Um, and both Scott and I have been experiencing that every weekend trying to write. Our books. Right. I mean, you don't know if it's going to be successful yeah. and it really matters to you. Right. I think that's yes. the, that's the combination. The stakes are high, but the, but the level of sort of the power that you have over the situation, the control you have is, is super limited. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to the benefits of procrastination, which may seem oddly counterintuitive uh, when there's so much to do and so little time. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is interesting. I'd be interested to know what you make of this. I mean, I sort of, I, I, I sort of focus in on procrastination in two forms, which I call good and bad procrastination. But I mean, even that's arguable. I start from this premise that if you define procrastination in the in the sort of most basic sense as i don't know um failing to make progress on tasks that matter to you in some way then obviously the fact that we're so limited in our time and our capacity to pay attention to multiple things at once and that we don't have you know means that we're going to be procrastinating on almost everything at any given time and so i quote this um meditation teacher uh, and author greg kretch uh, that actually um, procrastination is something to get better at rather than something to eradicate. The question should be not how do I not neglect anything that matters, but given that I must in any given day or month neglect almost everything that matters, how am I going to make those choices the most wisely? And first of all, just seeing that that's the situation is incredibly freeing and motivating in my experience because it, you you can stop beating yourself up for the sheer fact that most of the projects you'd like to uh, implement in your life are not going to get implemented this, this month, uh, this quarter, whatever. You can, you, you can sort of, if it's a guarantee that something and lots of things are going to be neglected, or that some people are going to be annoyed with you for not moving forward on something, or that some things that you care about are just not going to be uh, progressed at the moment. Well, then it's much, much easier, I think, to just make a considered decision about which ones to focus on for now, as opposed to all the others that are going to be left. And then secondly, uh, you know, neglected for the time being. And then secondly, you're, you avoid that temptation to sort of dissipate your attention and energy over so many things that you never make progress on on any of them. Because I think a classic experience there, for me anyway, was always that if you're, if you're trying to sort of move forward on 10 major projects at once, not only do you divide your time and attention and energy by 10 um, among them so that they're all going to move much more slowly. But in fact, it's worse than that because every time any one of them gets difficult, even without realizing you're doing it, you just move to another one. So you never end up going through the difficult uh, and usually most productive phases of of any of them. So it's actually worse than just sort of dividing your 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 time and your attention by 10. So that's what I mean by sort of 
I call it good procrastination, but I think maybe inevitable procrastination is 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 really the point. The idea that we start from this basis that almost nothing is going to get done today uh, out of the set of things that potentially matter, and that that's just a given, that's just baked into the situation. So then that's actually a, a reason to just make wise choices about a few things to focus on. Um, but then there's also that kind of bad procrastination that I mentioned talking about just before, where actually another one way of maintaining the illusion of control over life and the world, and the one way of maintaining the sort of fantasy that we don't have to make these difficult decisions about what to neglect and what not to neglect and all the rest of it, is just to kind of cherish fantasies about how great something's going to be when you finally get started in on it. Uh, but never actually to get started in on it because then you would have to experience the sort of mm. discomfort of it becoming imperfectly real, I guess. This is also refreshing to me, and it, it sort of flies in the face of most pop culture messages that you hear out there about, you know, never settle. But what you're, you, what you're saying is, you know, living life to the fullest requires settling. Um, both in a personal and perhaps, you know, this is a leadership podcast, I'm wondering in the context of organizational life, what might accepting, you know, inevitable limitations and the need to settle and, you know, all the things you're discussing, how might that be thought about for, for leaders, leaders that are listening right now? One obvious way that springs to mind is, is just to have a very clear eyed understanding of what, uh, prioritization means and what is really entailed by selecting priorities. I think uh, that for a lot of people, the hope, the sort of secret unspoken hope behind a lot of productivity systems and a lot of approaches to goal setting and prioritization is that you're going to find some secret backdoor that means you don't actually have to uh, jettison or put onto the back burner anything really. So you're going to come up with some some way of thinking about goals and and implementing goals that 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 requires no sacrifices. But of course, you know our finite situation is such that any decision to focus on something on a on a priority for a certain amount of time is, is inevitably creates what I think it was Peter Drucker called posteriorities, right? The, 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 there are things that you're deciding whether you acknowledge it or not, not to focus on. And in my, you know, I don't claim to have done deep amount of sort of a sort of business school type research in any of this, but um, it seems to me that that is probably a very, a relatively easy lesson to learn if you're a kind of a three person startup uh extremely aware of the limited capacities of your organization the idea that you're going to put sort of almost all the nice to have features of your that you'd like to build for your app or your company or whatever the idea that you're going to put almost all of those on hold because you've only got the bandwidth to focus on one or two of the most important ones that seems to me something that is probably a lot easier to understand in a in a tiny organization and a lot easier to lose sight of in a in a in a large organization where the same rules of finitude still apply it's just a group of humans um 
they're capable of doing more if there are hundreds of them or thousands of them, but but still not 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 capable of doing everything that occurs to them as something that would be good to do. And I I have the sense that there is a bit of a a, a, a chronic issue of devising plans, organizational strategies. You you'll know more about this. So tell me if you think I'm it's a straw man, but. Um, organizational strategies that are aimed not at clarifying what will be focused on and what will be neglected, but on finding a way to not really have to feel like you're neglecting anything. And that are focused, again, not on um, finding ways to move forward into a sort of perpetually uncertain future, but rather in finding ways to persuade people that to persuade the people at the top of that organization that they that they that they know what's coming in the future again serving these motivations of uh, sort of emotional avoidance rather than mm. facing up to the, the 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 truth of it so i think that sort of idea of being very open and honest about the fact that to focus on something as a key organizational priority means to not focus on other things and giving uh, other people in the organization permission <laughs> to not focus on those other things mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, this is just a big extrapolation of that question that um, one hopes that um, people are empowered to ask in an organization, which is like, okay, if you'd like me to focus on this for the next month, what what, what are the things you'd like me to stop focusing on? Which I think is probably hard to ask in a lot of cultures, but, um, you know. I think it is, particularly, yeah. Hi, Phil Kirby here, producer of the Evolving Leader podcast. Four seasons and over 70 episodes featuring conversations with an incredible mix of guests. For example, back in season one, John and Scott spent two episodes talking to Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Dr. Barrett is Chief Science Officer for the Centre for Law, Brain and Behaviour at Harvard and is among the world's top 1% most cited scientists. And her work is profoundly changing our understanding of the brain and in particular, our emotions. Fascinating and important listening for The Evolving Leader. And I'll add links to the show notes. We, we, we have a, um, a question that's just come in from, um, from one of our listeners who loved your book. Um, he, he runs um, a, an engineering company called I Am My True Flow, and his name's Mark Bloxham. He asked, he said, we're really interested on the thoughts or experiences on, in this building on, on what we've just been talking about, how the mindset shift that underlies 4,000 weeks can be effectively applied in an organization. As a leader, what steps can be taken to normalize a change in the philosophy, whilst at the same time prevent it from being misviewed as an invitation to stop making plans for the future? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, this is a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. It is this question of the how you sort of scaffold these kinds of insights into daily practice it's like absolutely where my mind is at at the moment um it clearly is the most interesting sort of next question to to ask um i'm not too worried about the the misuse part because i think that is just a that is ultimately just a misunderstanding if you if you think that um that sort of a commitment to pure spontaneity is somehow necessary in order to um, in order to embrace the truth about limitation. But the first part, I mean, I think about this all the time. I've been going around giving some talks to various people, trying to set out some preliminary, preliminary ideas uh, in that respect. I think that in the end, what I've found from my personal experience is this is not 
even for me who wrote this book, you know, it's not, it's absolutely not a matter of a kind of single lightning bolt cognitive shift that then uh, just naturally manifests itself in, uh, in changed practices. I think you do need to sort of build uh, those, those practices in and uh, you know, in the back of the book, I have a list of more sort of focused on individual at the individual level than an organizational one, but I do have a list of sort of 10 practices that I think sort of, they embody this um, way of being uh, in, in a way that you can sort of do whether or not you happen to be right this moment in this kind of wonderfully enlightened state of having, of having seen the truth of, of the human condition, you know, that doesn't always, it's not always going to operate at um, nine o'clock on a overcast Monday morning. Uh, and they include things like, like sort of introducing uh, radically kind of sequential and serial approaches to project management. So, so that acquiring that discipline, more of what I've been talking about of, of leaving almost everything on the back burner until something is 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 uh, completed and then moving on to the next. Uh, I think that um, the role of 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 patience is there's a whole chunk in the book on this, and I think that is probably undervalued in the uh, organizational setting because I, I sort of go into more detail there about why I think that um, the willingness to resist the urge to do everything faster and faster is actually, I, I mean, I think it's not just better for well-being and sanity, but actually is a quicker path to um, better outcomes because that urge to go faster and faster just is another manifestation of the desire to transcend all limitation and the the willingness to slow down to the speed that things require to give sort of creative processes and and uh the sort of early idea stages of, of various initiatives to give that the time it needs and and to sort of resist that almost bodily urge to get through it onto the next bit i think is a is basically a superpower um so there are lots of different ways in which you can conduct yourself that sort of are true to this outlook but i think it is probably also important not to ask of ourselves that we spend every minute of every day in a kind of total acknowledgement of human mortality in the state that Heidegger calls being towards death. I don't think you can, I don't, I don't know. I certainly can't do that, you know, 24 uh, seven. This kind of maniacal focus on getting things done. Um, you talk about how our hobbies and family life, um, you know, are the first victims here and we're almost embarrassed to confess that we might have such a thing as a hobby <laughs> can you talk about paying yourself first <laughs> yeah i think that i mean i think that's i'm fascinated by this right it's, it's embarrassing to say you have a hobby it's not embarrassing to say i have a side hustle which it's actually quite cool i think still mm. uh, which is a hobby that you're either successfully or hoping to succeed in in, in monetizing um i, I think that the, the, it, it's sort of part and parcel of this whole conventional outlook on time and productivity and treating time solely as a resource to be maximized that we end up sort of living in this instrumental fashion, right? Everything is judged by whether it's leading to a certain 
place, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, financial specifically, but, but, but the measure of whether you used an hour well is whether it got you further towards some outcome in the future. And that's totally essential. I'm certainly not saying that like life could continue without a, a, a dose of a dose of that, but it's been observed by many people uh, for centuries, really. That if if that's all you do, then there's a sort of a built-in uh, paradox to it, right? Which is that you you never get to the, the you you never get to the part of life where where all your efforts are supposed to cash out into. Um, into a meaningful experience right now. There's this lovely quote from John Maynard Keynes that I use in the book about how the, the person in this mindset is always trying to um, secure for his actions a kind of delusional immortality. So he doesn't really love his cat, but only his cat's kittens, and not really even his cat's kittens, but the kitten's kittens. And it's just an effort to, I mean, ultimately, like everything, comes down to like the fact that we don't want to die. Um, it's just an effort to sort of see what you're doing as extending endlessly forwards in 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 time, but at the cost of never enjoying a moment for its own sake and valuing a moment for its own sake. So back to the question, I think what defines a hobby pretty much and 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 um, distinguishes it from a side hustle is the fact that uh, it's something that you do for its own sake alone. So I write about hiking in the book and, you know, there are some marginal instrumental benefits to hiking, aerobic health and things like this. But basically people hike because they want to be on the hike in that moment. Uh, you know, I hike in these sort of loops around where we are and obviously a loop hike, the quickest way to do to get from the start to the end is just not to go on the hike. So the the reason to do it is just in itself. And I think that is firstly tremendously important for just everybody's well-being to have something that they do like that in their lives to sort of break this habit of instrumentalizing every minute of the day and i would guess and say i'm not got not sort of wielding uh uh peer-reviewed journal articles to prove this but i would guess that this is a tremendously positive thing for uh the organizations to which those people belong not just because you know sane and relaxed employees are better employees but actually that breaking this this total orientation towards the the future towards only measuring the present in terms of its future value and actually slowing back down into the reality that you're in i've got to believe that that is like an important perspective when it comes to having original thoughts and um you know uh, conducting research well and interacting with other human beings in ways that build long-term uh relationships and all the rest of it so i've got to believe that it actually has a long-term benefit for the future to not be so fixated on long-term benefits for the future but to actually mm. be present and to find what you're doing in that moment of benefit in the moment as well. I want to be mindful of time. Is there anything that we should be asking you that we haven't asked? I'm interested. I mean, if it's allowed in the format of this podcast, I'm interested in your thoughts, not, not necessarily about bridging the gap from insight to action about my ideas necessarily, but just this general question, which I'm sure is like the, the absolute daily 
stuff that you deal with on some level this question of going from you know the knowing doing gap or whatever i i suspect there is no single answer to this otherwise that person would have written the only business book that matters and would be a multi-billionaire and that would be an end to you know all consultancy and and uh and all thinking on this stuff but but um this question of going from sort of insights about the nature of work or the nature of reality that that seem meaningful to the daily practices that bring them into being i mean i'm really interested in where your heads are at on that too because that seems like more your expertise than mine i think it's a really interesting question because it it is at the root of virtually any kind of effective change around self-help or performance well-being and so on and i think often what I see is that that people confuse an intellectual grasp of an idea with the real choice mm-hmm. and also how it makes them feel. So th- there's a number of different steps on it. And I think first is actually, well, why, why is this idea important? You, if you understand something, you've parked it in a kind of intellectual space in your brain, which says, yeah, that's, that's a cool idea, but it doesn't actually connect with purpose. It doesn't connect with who I want to be. So I think there's a there's a lack of imagination, you know, or there is a need for imagination um, in it. Then I think there's a predictive element of it, which is when you start to do the hard things that you talked about, you're going to feel bad. Right, you're right, gonna feel, right. You're going to get an emotional reaction, and those emotions are typically misread. So, like you said, with you know, with 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 being distracted. Um, the error signal that's coming from from your brain that's saying don't do this it's difficult is not that you can't do it it's that you've misinterpreted what it is so reading the emotional responses i think is really important reframing those and and relabeling them and i don't think many people know how to do that Um, because those are all different craft skills there's like at least three or four different steps there in terms of alignment to to something that's you know, it's a kind of big idea, understanding the idea, understanding what uh, what the reactions in you are going to create doing those things, and then uh, learning from that loop. So, you know, I think closing the knowing doing gap is effectively learning, but it's also, it's an emotional, mental interaction. That, and most people have got the emotional piece cut out of it. They don't want to f- feel the stuff that's associated with it. So they don't really, they don't learn at the at the the full spectrum that's required to make the shift. That is so interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That, that idea that like when the discomfort comes along, if you know what it means, uh, I think that's so powerful because it's very rare that it is the kind of discomfort that needs to um, throw you off course, right? I'm always staggered by how little discomfort uh, it takes for me to be like, oh, no, I can't possibly work on this. I have to go and spend the next three hours distracting myself pointlessly. I mean, we're not, it would be understandable if it was causing me a sort of, uh, you know, an extreme of anguish, but it isn't. It's just just some notion that everything ought to feel absolutely perfect all the time. What what nonsense. Well, maybe we'll get you back onto the show and we'll have a field 4,000... uh, 4,000 weeks uh, session where we, we, we get field tests run with some of our listeners and ask them to tell us things they've tried. Um, I'd be fascinated by that. that. Work and, yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of fold that into an exploration of some of these things. But 
for now, Oliver, thank you so much. It's been an absolutely amazing hour. Mm. We've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, keep, I really could keep going. Enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I could I could talk to you about this for hours. You said you could talk about it for hours. <laughs> I, I could listen to you for hours because I find this, like I said, really refreshing and, and so insightful. So thank you for your oh, time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, folks. So the best thing you could do with your time right now is to stop and order a copy of 4,000 Weeks. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>